Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. We continue today with our study of Sefer Malachim, exploring the 20th Perak. Last Perak, the camera shifted away from the nation and we followed Eliyahu Hanavi into the wilderness, to Chorev, to Arsinai. Now we are back to a national narrative. One important question to consider is what is the lasting implications, the lasting consequences of the miracles performed by or through Eliyahu at Har HaKarmel? We saw last parak that Eliyahu deemed it to be a huge failure because of the response that he got from Izevel, uh, putting a, a price on Eliyahu's head. Uh, Eliyahu felt, okay, I tried, but it's a huge failure and, and I'm done. But a cursory reading of our parak indicates just the opposite, that in fact, Eliyahu had succeeded to a large extent in writing the course of the nation and specifically in convincing uh, King Ahav to move back on the right track. So we're going we're gonna to see that. The parak opens with Ben-Hadad, he's the king of Aram, together with a coalition of smaller kingdoms attacking the northern kingdom and laying siege to Shomron, its capital. Ben-Hadad makes <clears throat> demands of uh, money and women and children from Ahav, who initially capitulates. He has no choice. He is confronted by this massive force. But then Ben-Hadad sends, maybe he's emboldened by the first uh, very quick acceptance. And so he sends uh, uh, messengers once more, and he makes even harsher demands. Uh, and this <clears throat> crosses a line for Ahav. Ahav consults his advisors, and they all agree that they're going to reject the second set of terms. Exactly the difference between the first set of terms, the second set of terms, you could read it in a few different ways. One, one position uh, presented by Rabbi Alex Israel is maybe in, in the first set of terms, Ahav was, was prepared to be a tributary, a vassal state to Aram, but in the second set uh, of terms, it could be that the, the request was to go even further and to seize even local control of the government, local control of the nation, and that was where uh, it was uh, an existential threat now uh, in a way that it hadn't been before. That was why it crossed the line for Ahav, and that's why he had to re- reject those terms. Whatever the case may be, Ahav says no now to Ben-Hadad, and, uh, and Ben-Hadad says, okay, then prepare for war. You're going to pay for this mightily. Here, then, Ahav responds with a very sharp line. He says, Al yishalel choger kimifateach which is this delicious little aphorism. Obviously, in Hebrew, it's just four words. It's very sharp, but it basically means, this is the, the uh, JPS 1917 translation, let not him that girdeth on his armor boast himself as he that putteth it off. Meaning, don't celebrate your victory until you've actually won the battle. Which is to say, he's, it's this kind of uh, very sharp uh, reply saying, don't be so confident, Ben-Hadad, that you're going to win. But indeed, that is uh, one of, uh, and the primary kind of vice of Ben-Hadad. He is exceedingly confident, and as a result, he begins to party, he drinks, he's drinking with his fellow kings, presumably because he uh, assumes that, when, you know, when you lay siege to a, a significant city, that's, a, that's not a one-day, that's not a, even a one-week type of undertaking. This is, a pro- this is something that he imagines would go on for an extremely long time until the city is is racked by famine, whatever the case may be. So he hunkers down and he gets comfortable, not expecting any sort of uh, immediate response or immediate action to take place. They lay siege to the city. But the Navi, a Navi, we don't, uh, it's not, he's not identified uh, in, in, uh, in this narrative, but a Navi comes to Ahav and instructs him to go and attack Ben-Hadad and his forces and to do so with a measly 232-man fighting force 
Incredibly, Achav listens. And this small band of soldiers approaches the uh, Aramean forces. They do so in broad daylight. Uh, they are few in number. It doesn't seem like uh, it's such a, an audacious plan that it doesn't even seem like, like it's a fighting force. The, the Aram, Ben Haddad, they, they just assume that maybe this is, these are deserters. They may, maybe they're coming with a message, whatever the case may be. They're certainly not coming to actually fight and oppose uh, Aram and, and, their, and their forces. And because of that uh, sense of security, because of that sense of confidence, uh, together with this partying, the, the, this small band of Israelite forces are able to stun uh, Aram, and they're able to kill a great many of their forces uh, and, and cause the rest of the forces to flee, including Ben-Hadad, who flees. So it's this great miraculous victory, of course, as the Navi indicates to Ahav, and we, of course, naturally understand this was uh, a miracle from Hashem. So amazingly, the northern kingdom is able to notch this massive victory uh, and to do so under what we know as this wicked king, Ahav, right? The wickedest king uh, to ever reign. And it seems to me, it seems rather clear that this is possible because Ahav is a changed man, is a changed man, right? It's obvious that despite Eliyahu's despair, Harha Carmel did transform Ahav and indeed the whole kingdom. Remember that before Eliyahu's appearance at Harha Carmel, the prophets of Hashem, Nevi'ah Hashem, were nearly extinct in Israel, but for a few that had been stashed away, and Eliyahu, who himself was in exile. Uh, and, and Baal had become the official worship of the nation, of the monarchy. Now, Ahav is not only tolerating the presence of a, of a, of a true Navi of Hashem, he's carefully following his instructions, and, uh, and he's even willing to follow his instructions in a seemingly helpless situa- hopeless situation. Right? He's willing to send out this band of 230 men to go and fight this massive force and to do so in broad daylight. It's not really much of an ambush. It, it, it defies all logic, but the fact that Ahav is willing to follow this plan suggests that he is really... Uh, a different person. He's displaying real faith in Hashem, and uh, and in so doing, he succeeds. We then learn that uh, Ben Hadad, however, and Aram and his his force of his coalition, uh, they're not finished. His advisors tell him that the Israelites were able to beat us because their God maybe is powerful in the hills. But if we would have this exact same fight, but we were on the plains, then we would win. And so one year later, a, a second battle takes place. Once again, Aram is, uh, is, uh, is, is way vastly outnumbering B'nai Israel, but the Navi again comes to Ahav and tells him that his forces can win and that they will win because they're going to defend the honor of Hashem, precisely responding to this narrative about, well, their God is only powerful in the hills, but not in the plains, etc. So Hashem, to defend uh, the glory of Hashem, needs to have a victory here as well. And, um, and of course, once again, this much smaller fighting force of B'nai Israel is able to completely destroy and exact a huge toll against Aram. And so, after this defeat, finally Ben-Hadad sues for peace. Aram want to make a, 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 some sort of peace treaty. He sends another group of messengers. This time they're dressed in sackcloth. Uh, they come looking pathetic and try to appeal to Ahav's sense of pity and mercy and perhaps spare Ben-Hadad's life. To our surprise, Ahav is not just willing, but he's, he's eager to let Ben-Hadad off the hook. He, he says, he's my brother, right? I, I'm, of course, I'm not going to kill him. I consider him to, him to be like a brother to me, which is very, very strange. They end up reaching 
terms of a deal, one that's extremely beneficial to, to the northern kingdom. They regain land that had been captured a few prakim ago in the northern reaches of the, uh, of the kingdom. They open up uh, special economic channels with, uh, with Aram into their, into their cities. And so th- this was a very advantageous deal. Achav got a great deal out of this, uh, um, out of this arrangement. But letting Ben-Hadad go uh, really was a, uh, a tremendous and egregious error and sin. By creating this covenant with Aram, when Hashem had delivered them miraculously into the hands of Israel, that was a betrayal. This was like taking spoils of war after a miraculous victory. It cheapens the victory, and it reflects a, a lack of appreciation that Hashem had, had been the one who delivered the enemy uh, into the nation's hands. And so then another Navi comes to Achav to chastise him for this. Uh, but he does so in a, in a little bit of a, not a little bit, in, in a truly ingenious way. Uh, he has someone wound him. He has a little bit of tra- hard time finding someone who is willing to wound this Navi. Uh, but he finds someone who is willing to, to wound him. Uh, and uh, he makes himself look like he's, he's wounded and fresh from battle and from a, uh, a confrontation. He disguises himself and he approaches Achav and he tells him that he, right, so he's, he creates this fictitious account. He basically says, look, I was a guard. I was, I was uh, appointed to guard an enemy combatant, and I was told that if the enemy gets away, that I'll be killed in his stead. So basically, he was told it's incredibly important that you do a good job guarding this enemy, and what do you know? The enemy ended up getting away. And Achav judges this case, and he says, well, uh, just as you have said, your, your punishment is that you should be killed because you failed to uphold your responsibility. And then the Navi reveals himself. We have this big reveal, and he basically says, Achav, you're really like this soldier, right? Achav, uh, you let this enemy, comb- our enemy get away. You let Ben-Hadad get away. And now, Achav, as a result, you will die in his stead. So he pronounces the fact that Achav is going to pay uh, with his life for this miscalculation and creating this, this covenant with Ben-Hadad. So it's a moment that's really just like the, the, the Natan HaNavi moment confronting David, right? The Atahaish, you are the man. The Navi, uh, we see time in, in multiple places, uh, uses this kind of method of confronting a king by causing the king to pass judgment on a case uh, towards which they have no personal connection, right? We have, it enables the king to be objective, to, to apply objective um, standards of, uh, of judgment to a particular case. And then when the Navi reveals that the case is really just a proxy for the king's own behavior, the king's able to see how his objective judgment would relate to his personal situation, towards which he has, of course, much more difficulty being objective. And, and that's how the king comes to this moment of recognition that he is wrong. That's how it worked for King David. Now that's how it works for Achav Lahavdil. Uh, it works for Achav as well. And so hearing, uh, he, hearing that he is going to be you know, punished so harshly for this oversight, for this error, we, we, we learn that King Achav is greatly disturbed, and so ends the parak. So we find that Achav does make a major misstep in this parak, but it's still worth recognizing that it's a misstep that really any king could have made. This was a uh, religious and political misstep uh, that is still a far cry from the wicked King Achav, who oversees this campaign of eradicating the prophets of Hashem and, and of making Baal the formal religion of the nation, 
Now, uh, yes, he, he errs in this parak, but it's still such a far cry uh, from what he was. And the fact that in the parak he listens time and again to the Navi, and even now he accepts the truth of this final pronouncement that he himself is going to die, uh, it, it tells us really how different Achav is and really the Northern Kingdom is after the Har HaKarmel um, miracle, after the great uh, spectacle of Hara Carmel. And so, yes, Achav has failed in this parak, but our parak also teaches us the extent to which Eliyahu Hanavi has actually succeeded. That's it for today. Chazak ve'ematz and happy learning.